0: Welcome to a special series of EMS World podcasts. I am Hilary Gates, Senior Editorial and Program Director for EMS World. The COVID-19 pandemic has challenged and impacted the EMS profession in unique and lasting ways. So what are the best practices for us as clinicians, leaders, managers, medical directors, and for EMS as a profession? EMS World is proud to bring you the latest information from our COVID-19 webinars, now available in audio-only podcast episodes. This episode, Navigating the COVID-19 Issues Affecting the EMS Workplace, features Scott Moore, Ryan Stark, and Steve Worth, and is sponsored by Zoll.
1: Hello and
2: welcome to today's webinar, Navigating the COVID-19 Issues Affecting the EMS Workplace. My name is Jonathan Bassett, Editorial Director at EMS World, and we're very happy to have everybody joining us today. We would also like to thank Zoll for sponsoring today's webinar. Couple notes for the audience during the presentation. Feel free to submit questions and comments for our speakers by using the question submission section on your screen. At the end of the presentation, we'll try to answer as many of your questions as we can in the time allowed. And today we are very excited to welcome our three speakers. We have Scott Moore, owner of Moore EMS Consulting, and he's been an active EMT for nearly 30 years. Scott has held various executive positions, including CEO, Vice President, Director of Human Resources and Operations at several ambulance services in Massachusetts. Scott is also a licensed attorney specializing in human resources, employment law, reimbursement, and compliance matters. He also serves as Human Resources and Operational Consultant to the American Ambulance Association. We also have Ryan Stark. Ryan is a managing partner with the national EMS law firm, Paige Wolfberg & Worth, and is the firm's resident HIPAA guru. Ryan is a featured speaker for the firm's seminars and webinars, including its signature ABC 360 conference, where he hosts the ABC 360 game show. Ryan developed and is the primary instructor for the nation's first and only HIPAA certification for the ambulance industry. He also co-authored Paige Wolfberg and Worth's Ambulance Service Guide to HIPAA Compliance. And last but not least, we have Steve Worth. Steve is a founding partner of Paige Wolfberg and Worth. He has worked in virtually every facet of EMS over his four-decade career as a uh, first responder, a firefighter, EMT, paramedic, flight paramedic, EMS instructor, fire officer, and EMS executive. Steve has served for nearly a decade as senior executive of a mid-sized air and ground ambulance service. And with those very impressive introductions, I'm going to turn it over to our presenters. Gentlemen, thanks again for joining us today, and please take it away.
1: Well, thank you very much, John, and uh, we're just honored and privileged to be here today to deal with this very, very difficult subject in a very challenging time for our nation. We also want to thank EMS World and Hillary and John and the whole team there for reaching out to us to put this webinar together on a very quick fashion. So we, we thank EMS World for taking a leadership role there. We thank Zoe. We also want to say this is a collaborative effort between the American Ambulance Association and Paige Wolfberg and Worth. We're teaming up uh, on this uh, webinar and we'll be teaming up with other educational activities that you'll hear about soon uh, to benefit the industry and to provide the resources that you all need to better do your jobs on a day-to-day basis, especially during these challenging times. So we're really glad to be here and I'm Really just thrilled we've got such a great team here today. Of course, I come to the disclaimer slide and uh, have to give the legal disclaimer. And the main disclaimer here is, this is stuff that is changing rapidly, folks, from hour to hour, as we all know how this COVID-19 uh, virus is progressing. The laws changing. Congress is, is enacting legislation. We're getting uh, administrative uh, directives. All sorts of things are happening. So what you might hear at this webinar may be different tomorrow. So uh, don't rely on it as a final statement of the law or regulations or policy because uh, so much of this is in flux, and we want to point that out. Also, we're pretty much talking off the tops of our heads here. We we have put some hours into preparing these materials and doing the research. But we're also on new ground here, folks. This is, uh, uh, you know, stuff that things we haven't dealt with before for all of us. You all are operating EMS agencies on the street, providing care and us as lawyers and consultants as well. So it's a learning curve for all of us. So please, uh, Uh, Keep that in mind as we go through and and give you answers, because we are going to spend a lot of time answering questions today. So let's get right to it. I want to just give you a quick overview of what we're going to talk about. Scott's going to give us a quick high-level view of the current federal stimulus package. We know uh, that the federal government is enacting sweeping changes to many laws. He's going to talk about that to give you an idea of where that is headed Then we're going to jump right into the EMS workplace issues, and we've come up with a list of the key areas, staffing, safety, and screening, pay practices, leaves of absence, and what do you do when people can't work, how's workers' comp tie into all this, what about employment discrimination, what about discrimination against patients, and then Ryan's going to talk about HIPAA and COVID-19 because we also have to respect patients' privacy rights, but we've got some leeway here given the current national emergency that we're in today. And then lastly, we'll wrap it up with some patient destination and reimbursement issues. So that's the game plan. Uh, we're gonna leave lots of time for questions, folks. In fact, the good folks at EMS World had promised us they're gonna leave this thing on uh, as long as we, we have a viable group listening. Uh, so this will definitely go beyond an hour today because uh, we wanna uh, get your, get your questions answered. Well, looking at the context of where we are today, boy, the world has certainly changed in a matter of just a few weeks. But part of the problem, too, we're dealing with is we're already facing serious uh, crisis situations with staffing issues, uh, reimbursement issues, not getting paid for the value of services we provide. So, you know, we're dealing with a lot of issues already Going into this, and now we 're dealing with first responders uh, EMS personnel facing a higher risk to contracting uh, the virus they 're lacking supplies we don 't have enough people. people are getting quarantined uh, self isolating This is the world we 're living in today and, and and we commend all of you out there for doing a magnificent job of handling it so what i 'm going to do now is toss it over to scott he 's going to give us a a thumbnail view of the new legislation uh, that Congress is dealing with now. Scott?
3: Yeah, thanks, Steve. So thank you, everyone. Welcome. And uh, just want to give you a quick overview of the stimulus package. We've heard a lot about it from the administration. Um, There has been at least five versions already, but in its current um, stage, uh, the the stimulus package would provide a whole bunch of stuff on the front end and funding for or requirements of health insurance. Different, the different health insurance providers in the country uh, cover at no cost to um, uh, patients or to any member or um, participant who goes in for uh, COVID testing or any COVID-related treatment without any cost-sharing piece for the, uh, our employees, essentially. But really one of the big pieces and that we've been hearing a lot about or this emergency paid family medical leave, and what will be emergency paid sick leave relative to the COVID nineteen or coronavirus. So, just as we um, jump into the emergency paid uh, family medical leave, if you advance to the next slide, this as it currently sits right now, um, the provisions for this have bounced back and forth a few back and forth a few times. Um, Right now, currently, it is applying to employers with less than 500 employees. So really what this is doing is amending the current Family Medical Leave Act as it relates specifically only to this public health emergency for coronavirus. So these provisions that we're talking about are just as it relates to coronavirus. So this applies to employers with less than 500 employees and what it will provide following the first 10 days of unpaid time, it will provide any employee who has been with the organization for at least 30 days up to 12 weeks of paid job protected leave for the care of a child due to school closure or child care unavailability because of the coronavirus initially this had, had a whole bunch of other potential opportunities for people to take paid family medical leave it has been carved to this particular issue not to exceed 200 per day or $10,000 in the aggregate and and one of the things that following that first 10 days um, any paid leave, the employer could not. This would be in addition to existing paid leave that an employer might have. Next slide. If you would. So really what this, there are some provisions in there to exempt small businesses of under 50 if providing that leave would jeopardize the viability of the business um, and as well as potentially the reemployment aspects of uh, family medical leave as it relates to employers of under 25 if, in fact, due to the coronavirus, let's say, for example, the position doesn't exist anymore or the business has significantly shrunk due to um, this quarantine. So uh, in addition, there is a provision in there that would provide employers with healthcare care emer- uh, workers and emergency responders that provides for them to elect to exclude these employees from these provisions. Um, and I you know, not familiar with what the particular legislative intent was behind it, but believing that, in fact, this group of employees, um, you know, are needed on the front lines. So I think uh, as it stands right now, um, this potentially would not apply to very large employers over 500 or would permit um, employers with emergency responders to elect to exclude those employees from these provisions. Um, Sick leave, the other major provision provided in the stimulus bill, at least as it's drafted today. So sick leave, like family medical leave, provides employers who have less than 500 employees, if you'd advance to the next slide, the opportunity to have um, paid sick leave for, um, uh, for those employees who are unable to work or telework Uh, at the employee's regular rate because of the employee's order, uh, actual uh, uh, quarantine order and advised to self-quarantine by a healthcare professional to seek diagnosis, preventative care related to the coronavirus, or also caring for an individual such as a child who might be quarantined or advised to self-quarantine because of the coronavirus or because the employee's son or daughter, their school has closed, or their child care is closed. Now, near as I can tell, nearly every school in the country has been closed down, at least for the next couple of weeks. So this probably would apply to most people. Um, this is distinct from the family medical leave. There is a provision here that says the Secretary of Labor can draft regulations that would permit um, the exemption of healthcare employers with healthcare workers or emergency responders or would permit the um, regulatory drafting that would allow that same provision under family medical leave, which would allow uh, employers who uh, have emergency workers to uh, exclude them from that. So what this would provide is every full-time employee, at least 80 hours or 14 days worth of paid sick time at their full rate, part-time employees, um, it would provide the part-time employee the average number of hours they work per day in the six-month look-back period. And if they hadn't worked in that part of six months, you would, whatever they uh, the expectation of hours that they would have worked um, at the time of hire. So for um, the employee, for those first reasons of quarantine or self, um, self-quarantine self due to a health care provider, it does give full pay for those 14 days, uh, not to exceed $511 per day or $5110 in the aggregate but um, for the other reasons for to care for somebody else who has been put in quarantine or for the child's school closure, it would provide two thirds of the pay not to exceed 200 per day or 2000 in the aggregate. So important that folks recognize that um, really initially the paid family medical leave picked up at 14, um, but it's down to 10. So there's just an opportunity where the government's looking to make sure that folks who are out of work or can't work because of the coronavirus have some Financial, um, uh, some financial resources during their time out of work. This uh, also, the, um, at least the packages that's drafted today will not allow. This would be leave in addition to any existing leave and that employers couldn't really amend their existing paid leave policies um, in light of this. The way this is intended to be funded by the federal government will be through a tax credit that employers would be able to take On their IRS code uh, 3111A or their 3221A benefits, which really are your FICA taxes, so all employers pay a percentage uh, tax on um, all paid wages as a percentage of uh, for their um, to cover their FICA. This would permit the employer to try and cover to recover a dollar for dollar credit off of those taxes, which are typically paid. They're assessed on a quarterly basis, paid either biweekly or monthly. So that, as it exists today, certainly um, is the sort of a broad look at the package. The only concern that I have for some of the businesses are, is really a cash flow issue, right? Being able to or having to pay out a fair amount of sick leave before you're able to recover that. Mm -hmm. Because I think for most businesses, it will be months before they're able to recover any of that time. So, again, just like that, the, the, um, the tax credits are capped at the $200 per day or $10,000 for all calendar quarters in that year. And then there is no provision of an offsetting tax credit for uh, governmental entities, um, presumably because uh, there is a, a provision for that in another part of the bill. So that's just a quick look at the stimulus package, as I said, could change between now and the time it's finally passed but I'm going to pass it back over to uh, Steve to discuss some of the EMS workplace issues.
1: Awesome. Great. Thanks, Scott. Lots happening there. Lots of changes. We got to stay tuned to this on a day-to-day basis, all these regulatory and legal changes. Let's talk about workplace issues, staffing concerns. Of course, as we mentioned up front, you already had these issues, you know, this NBC news story that was done last year. What if you call nine one, no one comes. Well, you know, now we're dealing with more stresses on top of that. We got to protect ourselves. We got to look at workplace and worker safety. Employee safety has to be paramount. And a lot of systems are starting to look at uh, screening. They're looking at callers calling into 911 and being asked whether they're experiencing some of the symptoms of uh, coronavirus and in turn passing that information along. And Ryan's going to talk about some of the privacy issues there and how There are ways to do all this in a way that's proper, that protects our folks. Workplace safety, number one. In fact, millennials, the millennial generation basically is the largest group in the workforce today. Their number one concern is workplace safety. So we as AMS leaders have to do a good job of of doing our utmost and our best to do uh, what we can to ensure uh, workplace safety. And in fact, OSHA has the old general duty clause that covers just about everything in the workplace, and it says that the employer has a responsibility. To furnish a place of employment which is free from recognized hazards that are causing or likely to cause death or serious physical harm to his employees. Yes, that could include exposure to infectious disease like the coronavirus. So we have to make sure we have adequate PPE. We have have to have adequate policies in place. Uh, and all those things that go along with just the general duty to maintain a safe workplace. And most importantly, to convey to your people that you are paying attention to this. You're doing your best. There may be shortages of N95 masks and things like that, but we've got to let our people know what we're doing absolutely the best we can. And, of course, we have the OSHA bloodborne pathogen standard as well. Scott, you want to chat about that and also the interim guidance for business and employers?
3: Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, as many of you know, we're, you know, EMS providers and other healthcare providers are already required to follow the bloodborne and airborne pathogen infection control procedures, uh, as, as established by or under the OSHA regulations. The problem I think happens is that many of us become complacent over time, myself included still working actively in the field, you know, um, Oftentimes, we will take things for granted. I think people now are starting to get back on board and recognizing that um, if they haven't done the annual training as they should be doing, that we're getting back on there. There have been several programs out there—a nice 30-minute free refresher course offered by a couple of um, different vendors that are, uh, you know, specific to remind folks to practice um, good. Uh, bloodborne pathogens, and as we used to say, BSI in the field. Now, as it relates to these specific uh, to the COVID virus, the recommendations the CDC and OSHA have put out both guidance for for not only for business owners, but then also for EMS providers. Talking about, you know, there is a problem with PPE shortage, but really getting past just the N95 respirator piece and getting on to the fact that, you know, for folks who who are who are encountering a known COVID patient, that you really should, in addition to wearing the mask, you should also be wearing eye protection gown and gloves. And and really the issue is uh, less about if you're appropriately um, covered, you know, have your PPE and you're appropriately um, protected during the exchange. The concern really is during the doffing process, which is where most Exposures actually occur. So just important that organizations, you know, it's not just enough to have people sit in front of that video. You really need to have your supervisors or any of your training officers out there talking about the appropriate way to don and doff the equipment. Mm -hmm. When is it appropriate to be wearing it? The CDC, though, as it relates to just business in general, and, and in addition to being EMS providers, every one of us is also an employer. So it's important that we tell folks, and this is good practice generally, tough during the EMS staffing shortage that we've seen over the last couple of years, but you need to actively encourage sick employees to stay home. You need to separate those sick employees from the rest of your workforce, encouraging those who who don't really at any time, really getting at encouraging those folks with respiratory etiquette and hand Mm -hmm. hygiene. You know, you don't notice how, how often people are probably not washing their hands until something like this happens and you find out how often the restrooms in the buildings that you commonly uh, you know, visit no longer have paper towel because everyone is washing mm-hmm. their hands which should tell you that in the past they probably weren't. So make sure that you're performing that routine environmental cleaning, all surfaces, just not the ones that you think people touch. And advising uh, employees, really, I think traveling is not so much of a concern right now. But travel not just in the sense of getting on airplanes, but travel in the sense of going out and about in the public, exchanging money you know, touching nearly anything these days, picking things up from the grocery store. You really need to be taking time, making sure that you're cleaning those items, including the stuff that comes off the truck, including the EMS equipment. So there are plenty of resources out there. In fact, if you Google the term uh, coronavirus and guidance, you will find literally thousands and thousands of documents out there. But you need to find and Dr. Edrock from AMR said this you need to find the one true source of information and they are treating the CDC as the true source of information because as we know on the internet right. there are a lot of um, there are a lot of people offering guidance. Excellent. so just Excellent. pass that back over to Steve for talking about some of the pay issues that have come up.
1: Gotcha. Thanks, Scott. Great stuff. And little do we know, we'd all be singing happy birthday in the restroom uh, uh, on a regular basis. But uh, that's what we need to do, some of those common sense things. Okay, let's jump into pay practices, because we're dealing with folks who are already overworked. Uh, we're expecting them to do more, uh, sometimes with less. So what are we going to do in terms of pay? We got to make sure that you know federal law requires that we pay employees for all time when they are suffered or permitted to do work and any time they're basically doing anything on behalf of the employer or for primarily for the benefit of the employer it needs to be compensable so we got to watch overtime uh we know there are some overtime uh uh, special rules for firefighters and there's a fluctuating work week and some of those other things. But generally speaking, any hours worked over 40 have to be paid at time and a half with some of those exceptions, which we're not going to get into. We don't have time to here, but we got to make sure we're paying everybody for all the hours that they actually work. We got to be careful about docking employees, docking their pay for, for things when they're maybe not available or whatever it is that, uh, say an exempt employee. So you've got a, a manager who, who, uh, uh, has to go home early that day. Well, if they're exempt and they're paid a fixed salary. That means they're you're obligated to pay them for at least a full day. Uh, and generally speaking, they're, they're, they're supposed to be working and making the same money week to week, regardless of the hours that they work. But most of our hourly employees, you just got to be careful that we don't say, hey, you know, because it took you extra time to clean your rig or your ambulance, we're not going to pay you for that. No, you have to pay them for that, even if one crew takes a longer time than other people. Same issue with charting and staffing. What we're going to find here is a lot of folks are going to wait to get back to the station to do some of the reports for concerns about being in an environment where, you know, there's more Likely exposure to infectious disease and so forth. So, we got to be sensitive to that. Donning and doffing PPE, that's all compensable time. Uh, Telework, working at home, Uh, we're seeing an increase in people, especially doing administrative functions, billers, for example, uh, working at home, setting them up. And you got to be careful. And the same rules apply with telework. You got to have them take breaks. If some states require, mandatory break time you got to follow that even in a telework environment you have to have a good system to keep track of their hours and there's plenty of software out there uh that does that um you know so you know when they're actually working or logged in and so forth on call time we're going to see an increase of on call time and if you're requiring your so-called on call people to stay at your station guess what? You got to pay them for all the time you're there. That's not on call time because that's benefiting primarily the employer. If it's truly on call, where you don't have to pay them their regular hourly rates. They have to be free to move about the community, which we all know in this situation is rather difficult. So those are a few issues with pay. Quarantine, there's a hot topic. i pass it over to Scott. Let's get this topic going, Scott.
3: Yeah, we'll do sort of a rapid fire. So the questions that we often get are voluntary-based absence. So many times employees call up and say, I'm concerned about being exposed. Um, I'm not going to be coming to work. Do we have to pay them? The answer is no. Generally speaking, under the Fair Labor Standards Act, you only have to pay people for time actually worked. Question, if uh, voluntary quarantine following an exposure to a positive patient, I think it depends on what we're talking about as an exposure. If you have have your proper PPE on, and you have doffed that PPE appropriately, there's really no need for you to be, um, in fact, you haven't actually had an exposure. But um, if, in fact, you've had a true exposure and you have been recommended to be um, quarantined, there's, there's some confusion over this. Right now, most of the, the regulatory language that we're seeing says no. However, if, in fact, you're quarantined at your place of employment, and they're keeping you there, then they should be paying you. Um, right,
1: exactly.
3: Yep, voluntary quarantine following ex- suspected exposure to a positive patient, which looks like just a follow-up of the first one. Really, I think what it comes down to is this. If you have an employee who can't come to work because they've been exposed somewhere else, then no. Now, you may have some pay requirements in your state. For example, paid sick time or paid family medical leave in the states that have it, Or if subsequently we have or get or see the stimulus package pass, then you would have to, if in fact an employee showed up at work and you sent them home, you might have in your state reporting pay requirements in some states where you, if somebody shows up and you have no work for them, you send them home or they show up ready to work, but you send them home you might have an obligation to pay them for a couple of hours under reporting pay. Mm -hmm. So mandatory quarantine following exposure to a COVID patient, if it's mandatory by your occupational health or your public health agent, and you're keeping them in your location or you're sending them home, I have to tell you, I would consult your local attorney in your state. It will, right now, nothing on the federal level suggests that you have to. However, I would still talk with an employment attorney, not the person who drafted your will, but an employment attorney <laughs> to um, find out whether your organization has an obligation to pay them. Absences, uh, not quarantine due to acquiring or exhibiting uh, co- uh, symptoms of COVID, COVID. No, you don't. Um, unless of course, um, in fact, when it comes down, and we'll talk a little bit later about workers comp about when you have to, but just the fact that someone's missing work because they have symptoms. My recommendation is if you can pay them because you want to encourage people to stay out of work, but we know in some instances that's not always an option. You should follow your regular paid time off policies. Um, but other than that, no, not a requirement mm-hmm. only for time work. Mm-hmm. Absence to send the employee to medical care while on duty, that you would have to compensate them. Anytime you're directing an employee to go get evaluated um, in the course of their uh, get medical attention as Steve brought up here under the f- uh, federal regulations. If you are sending an employee off to get medical attention, You know, on on the premises or on the company's designated occupational health, then you would have that would constitute working hours, and you would need to compensate those individuals. It can be confusing when it comes down to medical exams, right? If in fact you're sending someone to get a medical exam, you must pay them. That is time worked for the purposes of the Fair Labor Standards Act. So. If, in fact, let's say uh, on the day of the injury when an employee is directing a person to go get attention, so I have an employee gets hurt or has an exposure such that I'm sending them to go get evaluated, you should be paying those individuals. It can also occur if, in fact, the employee needs to go get evaluated. In some states, they're permitted to go see their own physician. If you're directing them to do that, again, that can be compensable time.
1: Right. Even if it's off duty, right, Scott, if you're required to go to doctor's office or to therapy, you know, we've seen cases where folks have been required to get mental health counseling and treatment and that sort of thing. If if that's required by the employer, especially if it's a condition of returning to work, it's going to be compensable in in virtually every jurisdiction. Okay. Excellent. Um, Collective bargaining agreements, make sure we check those, too, uh, because you may have provisions under a collective bargaining agreement that could affect, you know, whether you're paid during quarantine or other uh, activities, depending on what's in there. But the bottom line is, if you require a non-exempt employee, somebody who's hourly, paid hourly, basically, to do something, you're probably going to have to pay for pay them for it, is, is how that works. Okay, shifting into workers' comp. Uh, basically the question is, is, uh, COVID, uh, coronavirus, uh, going to be considered a work-related injury? Well, it certainly could, uh, because generally speaking, it's a no-fault system. As we know, every state law, every state has its own laws related to workers comp, but they're very similar and essentially say, look, there's no, we're not going to argue over, you know, proof here. As long as it occurred at work and was approximately caused by employment, then it's compensable under workers' comp. And that's the medical treatment as well as wage loss benefits. So that's what the workers' comp system does. It doesn't cover just injury, the traditional injury, breaking your leg or whatever. It covers occupational diseases as well. And, and that would you'd have to show that that disease arose out of it or was, was uh, contracted in the course of employment. And that that disease arises out of conditions that are very peculiar to the work. Well, guess what? Being exposed to this disease, the coronavirus, is very peculiar to EMS. You're on the front lines. You're treating these patients. Uh, So it's certainly uh, we're exposed to them uh, much more so than the average uh, public. So there's a strong presumption here that if someone uh, contracts coronavirus and it requires medical treatment, Uh, and they're an EMS professional on duty, and it was traced to a patient that that person uh, treated during uh, them working for you, then it's likely going to be covered under workers' comp. So the key points are going to be, was the employee benefiting the employer when exposed to the virus? And that's pretty easy to show that if you're an employee, that it was benefiting the employer. And did the employee contract the virus at work? And was that contraction peculiar too? So we're seeing changes already. We're seeing the Governor of Washington come right out saying, "Look, we're going to cover this. We're going to include quarantine health care workers and provide workers comp pay benefits for them. So, as Scott mentioned, we're seeing rapid fire changes here, state to state. Uh, so you've got to consult uh, you know your state law in terms of uh, things that are happening on the on the workers' comp front." As well as paid time off, paid leave policies, and so forth. Scott, you want to talk a little more about leaves of absence?
3: Yeah, sure. So it's um, you know important to remember that while there are some rapid fire changes coming along here, that you still need to follow the underlying laws that are out there relative to certain leaves of absences, such as family medical leave or your own company policies. So. Many folks are coming back and having to make some changes to policies. So, for example, they have, may have a policy in which, you know, most hourly employees cannot work from home. They're now reconsidering that. So it's it, advisable for organizations to go back and take a look at your company policies, make sure that they provide for um, this. You know, as I said, probably don't because it's unprecedented. Looking at your collective bargaining agreements, in most instances, your unions are going to want to work with you to try and make sure that you can protect their members, your employees, and um, make sure that you can continue to serve the public as a whole. There are many, of course, state laws that provide for either paid sick or paid um, family medical leave or unpaid sick or uh, uh, medical leave because of, say, maybe a number of hours. The uh, Federal Family Medical Leave Act, certainly there are multiple uh, multiple situations which that may apply here, and we'll talk about that in a second, but then certainly short-term disability, and then, of course, workers' compensation, which Steve touched upon. So under family medical leave, I've often been asked if I am um, diagnosed or if I am quarantined as a result of The coronavirus will that meet or or permit me to take family medical leave? And by and large, depends. For most people, no. In order to qualify for family medical leave, you need to work for an employer with fifty or more employees within seventy-five miles. You need to have worked, um, you know, twelve hundred and fifty hours for over a uh, twelve-month period, and you must have a serious health condition. In most instances, for the average person. Being exposed is not going to meet the definition of a serious health condition, nor is even probably contracting the illness unless you have some of the um, other issues. Because a serious health condition under FMLA is an illness, injury, or impairment, physical or mental condition that involves an inpatient care or continuing treatment by a health care provider. So for most folks with uh, COVID-19, They're, in fact, being told not to, there's some remote treatment, but by and large, this thing just has to run its course. So it's important that you maintain and still log all of your requests for family medical leave, that you follow the rights and responsibilities notice and the designation notices in those instances, because keep in mind, there can be people who have a serious health condition that gets exacerbated by exposure or contraction of COVID-19 that may actually meet the definition. So it's important that you continue to to follow those good practices.
1: Right, right, I absolutely. And I think probably where they would be covered, if they're going to be covered, is under the continuing treatment by a healthcare provider. Because as we're hearing with this uh, uh, virus, some of the recovery times are longer, they're going to be longer than traditional flu. And so that's that's an area where we probably be covered if it's going to be covered. So, okay, employment discrimination, Scott, you want to touch on that a minute?
3: Yeah, sure. So often uh, this comes up in a couple of of different, um, in a different couple of different ways. One, when folks are asking if they can perform a medical screening or take the temperatures of employees who are coming into work, and you just need to be careful there. But we'll talk a little bit about when it comes to the ADA. Some of your folks who may have a disability that is being managed um, and a disability just as it's defined by the ADA is a physical or mental impairment that interferes with one or more major life activities. So as we know, we are obligated to go through the interactive process with any employee who we either perceive to have a disability or does have a disability. And so it's important that we understand that, that, that this whole thing can be exacerbated, right? Their underlying disability that may be just fine and, and accommodated, um, normally now is 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 having or running into some difficulty so you need to look at those essential job functions that's why job descriptions are so important the interactive process which really is that back and forth process between you and the individual who may have a disability Um, and and then trying to find that reasonable accommodation which may be someone who let's say for example is pregnant and pregnancy and its related medical conditions can reach a level or or be or meet the definition of a disability under the ADA and you might be required to provide an accommodation if in fact it does that interactive process which you should document generally right. speaking the only time that you can keep somebody out of the workplace is if their presence in the workplace you know, you were unable to accommodate um that, that disabled person and their presence in the workplace would create a direct threat to the rest of your staff. Right. But what you really want to watch out for when it comes as a direct threat, that's a pretty high standard. As we get to the next slide, you'll right. see the direct threat really is that significant risk of substantial harm to the health and safety of individual, the individual themselves or others, and it can't be eliminated by the reasonable accommodation. Yes, exactly. Involves... Yeah,
1: exactly. Go ahead. And this is an area, don't you think, Scott, where, where we could see the direct threat defense being used because someone who's infected and is contagious could certainly uh, provide, be a significant risk to, to others in the workplace, wouldn't
3: you think? Yes, for sure.
1: Absolutely. And the good news about the ADA, too, is even though there might be protections there for employees, uh, the ADA doesn't generally cover temporary or transitory conditions. So one of the things employers would argue is this was a transitory condition or temporary. Uh, But again, that's why we have all these other laws to to provide protection for employees that uh, we're going to see uh, emerge. Disability-related inquiries, I guess the extent here we're seeing a, uh, you know, generally speaking, medical screenings and inquiries are uh, things you're not allowed to speak uh, or question employees about, generally speaking. Uh, there are some specific uh Provisions there, before you offer uh, employment to someone, you can't make any inquiries about medical issues. After you make an offer employment, before they start working, yes, you can, if it, as long as you subject everybody to the same requirements, uh, uh, like f- uh, pre-employment or post-offer physical exams, that sort of thing. And during employment, that's what we're dealing with here, you can't make uh, disability-related inquiries unless they're job-related and consistent with business necessity, Uh, uh, when you have reasonable belief that the employee's ability to perform essential functions would be impaired by the condition or they pose a direct threat. Uh, It really comes down to, is it consistent, uh, job-related and consistent with business necessity? That's really the key. Now, when it comes to pandemic preparedness, uh, the government has put out a uh, bulletin on that in terms of reminding everybody that we don't throw all the uh, anti-discrimination laws out the door and there's specific provisions there. But the good news is that we are relaxing in a a pandemic situation where we have uh, a national emergency. There's some relaxation of these related to these inquiries. So bottom line is here when dealing with, uh, you can hear me okay, right? Um, there's different provisions. And during a pandemic, influenza pandemic, that sort of thing, uh, you are allowed to do things like take patients' temperatures. You can ask them if they have, you know, symptoms related to uh, coronavirus and things of that sort. So during uh, an influenza pandemic, uh, the law does give us some leeway in terms of making these uh, inquiries of employees when they're sick. Uh, Must you continue reasonable accommodation for employees with known disabilities barring uh, undue hardship? Yes, you you are supposed to do that. The law requires you to do that. Uh, Even during a pandemic, uh, those responsibilities continue. And only when you can demonstrate that the person poses a direct threat, Even after that reasonable accommodation, can you lawfully exclude them uh, from employment? So, yes. Good example of this. What about if you've got an employee, now they're going to do telework, uh, and a person, you provide them with accommodation in the workplace, do you have to provide that accommodation in the telework environment? And the answer is yes. Here's an example of a biller. So you have a biller with low vision as a screen reader on her office computer. That's a reasonable accommodation in the workplace. Uh, You issue computers to all your billers. You send them home. you got to give her the same equipment to help her uh, read that screen. So you can't say, well, we're not going to do that. Uh, We're in a pandemic situation, a national emergency. No, you still have to do that because you have been providing that uh, to that uh, individual. Okay, Um, refusal to work with another employee, generally speaking. Uh, if a disabled employee needs the same accommodation at telework, yes, we, as we said, uh, refusal to work, basically, no, you cannot uh, allow people to refuse to work with other employees because of their fear of contracting a disease. Now, there's some issues with OSHA in terms of the right of the employee to challenge that. Scott, do you want to yes. touch upon okay.
3: that? And just on that point, um, important to recognize that if an employee calls up and says that they're refusing to come and work, that you you dig a little deeper because it may very well be that while you think you have all the PPE and the necessary equipment for your employees to be protected, that what you may not realize is a particular uh, station location or vehicle may have been cleaned out. And so they're actually refusing to work because they don't have the equipment that they feel they need. uh, to uh, protect themselves, so it it could very well be for a good faith refusal. However, you need to dig a little deeper um, to make sure that that's not that's not what's behind the refusal.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. What about patient discrimination in our culture yeah. to uh, treat a patient?
3: With yeah. So this is uh, under. Um, a few years ago, and there has always been an equal access issue as it relates to health care, the ACA, um, when it was passed, included a provision in Section 1557 regarding patient uh, access to care and non-discrimination. So um, there was actually a release here by HHS not more than just a few days ago reminding folks that those access to care issues still exist and they're still being enforced, including the um, requirement that employers provide the um, tools and accessories necessary to ensure that employees can take meaningful access—I mean, meaningful—meaningfully uh, participate, like the you know limited English proficiencies and the disability-related um, communication things that empl- employers are still obligated. But when it comes down to a paramedic refusing to treat a particular patient, so if, for example, a patient um, has COVID nineteen, you really one, we don't get to choose who we do and don't mm-hmm. transport in most instances. Secondly, especially not based upon potentially some, you know, illegal discriminatory intent because of someone's appearance or their national origin. You need to understand that you know the obligation, by and large, as any entity covered by the ACA Section fifteen fifty seven, and frankly, almost every state law as it relates to your licensure as an EMS agency you cannot discriminate and decide that you're not going to transport a patient based upon um, their illness or potentially watch for that, what's often called an unconscious bias, yes. but watch for that as well.
1: Exactly. We saw this happen after 9-11 with discrimination with respect to people of Middle Eastern origin. Now we're seeing it with COVID with uh, people with Asian origin. So, Okay, Ryan. Let's uh, kick it over to Ryan and talk about HIPAA and COVID nineteen patient privacy stuff. Take it away, Ryan.
0: All right, thanks, Steve. Yeah, just switching gears a little bit here. It's always important to know in in situations like this how we can share information because this is really critical information on the patient's suspected and confirmed status as a COVID nineteen patient because it's going to be really important to let folks know, other folks on the front line who are treating the patient, other folks potentially in the community that certain individuals might have or suspected of having um, COVID-19. So getting into some of these issues. um, So OCR, the Office for Civil Rights, as they often do, has issued advice specifically on COVID-19, and they issued a bulletin back in February. This bulletin really highlights um, how we're allowed to share information currently, and they often do this During times of natural disaster, they did this during uh, Hurricane Katrina. So let's get into it here um, and what this guidance says to us. So HIPAA really tries to strike that balance um, when it comes to sharing information in times like this. You know, we're really concerned with obviously the patient's privacy and the right to privacy. We're also concerned in situations like this of disseminating information about patients who have an infectious disease and a highly infectious disease that could be, you know, very dangerous to certain individuals. Um, so we're, we're trying to strike a balance here. And let me give you a quick illustration of that. You know, let's talk about patient zero here. You know, we obviously have a vested interest in tracing the patient's history and let, letting other um, folks know, folks that are with, you know, your Department of Health and with the CDC where this patient was however this isn't necessarily a you know a news related event either you know the person's first and last name because can you imagine if you happen to be patient 0 within your community Um, You know, and it might not just be patient zero in the United States, which is obviously, you know, a newsworthy event, but it could be patient zero in your particular township or city or your community. And when people find out about this, there's a lot of fear that's been spread about uh, COVID-19. So we need to respect the patient's privacy in these situations so that we do, you know, make sure that they're not, um, you know, Uh, They're not chastised or, you know, uh, come under speculation, and people don't find out who this individual is if they don't have a right to know who who that individual is. So obviously you can disclose protected health information for anyone who is involved in treating that patient. That um, that concerns both treating the patient directly and handling the patient. So other EMS providers, obviously, you, you know, the folks that are responding with you, fire the police department. Um, you can share information, you know, if they need to uh, wear PPE and, and know of the patient's status, you can Uh, share that information with them, obviously your fellow staff members, and then any receiving facilities, any healthcare providers on down you know the chain of care and the continuum of care here need to know about the patient's suspected or confirmed status as a COVID-19 patient obviously when they come in it's going to be suspected status and we're going to let them know you know what symptoms they're presenting with but they need to know you know if this could be a suspected COVID-19 patient get a lot of questions i'm sure we're going to get a lot of these in the Q&A sessions this afternoon what about dispatch communications what can we communicate over the airwaves and as we know airwaves are you know able to be intercepted and 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 read by, you know, those who have, uh, you know, devices that that can uh, intercept dispatch communications. So, um, we need to be sensitive about what we're communicating. HIPAA does permit us to make necessary treatment-related disclosures over the airwaves so we can communicate about the patient's status. Uh, what we're recommending organizations do is they use, you know, a generic monitor, something like code 945 that's widely understood by everybody under the jurisdiction of that PSAP to mean suspected COVID-19. We don't want to be saying over the airwaves, if possible, you know, hey, patient suspected COVID-19 patient, because then we have the news media and everybody else showing up at the scene. So uh, we can communicate suspected status over the airwaves, but we might want to do that in in a more generic manner. Um, We can also share information with public health authorities, and that includes the Centers for Disease Control, um, your state health departments, county and local health departments as well. Uh, There's wide latitude and HIPAA grants us discretion to share with those agencies because those are the agencies that are going to disseminate to the appropriate parties and make sure that the appropriate follow-up precautions are taken. And perhaps with family members, if it's a local health health department, they may send officials out to the home or where the patient was to test them potentially for uh, COVID-19 exposure. Uh, We can share information, and this doesn't change. We can share information with family, friends, and others involved in the patient's care. Uh, We can share about their general location, general condition, and, you know, death of the patient as well. So, we can reach out to family members, um, if they are a suspected COVID-19 patient, we can, you know, call mom or dad or husband or wife, let them know where we've taken the patient so we can share suspect, uh, that, that with uh, family members. And r- the rules regarding others involved in patient's care, if the patient's alert and oriented, try to get their verbal permission first. And by the way, patient permission... Patient authorization vitiates Mm -hmm. any concerns, that's sort of the trump card Mm -hmm. under HIPAA. You know, anytime you have the patient's permission to share their information, you can share it in accordance with what they've said. If the patient's not able, you know, they're unconscious or incapacitated, make sure you determine that it's in the patient's best interests, and then you can share that information with those individuals. You can also share information with the disaster relief organization. You know, if the Red Cross is there, you don't need the patient's permission to share Um, information with those disaster relief organizations and they're there to coordinate the response and you know this could potentially escalate to the level where we have organizations like this facilitating um, you know the uh, the disaster Uh, you can also and this is a very wide permission um, anytime you need to release protected health information this is necessary information that would prevent a serious and imminent threat to the patient the public or anybody else Um, you may share that information. So um, go ahead and advance here. When we're talking about that, again, it's very broad. You know, if you believe somebody is or could be in imminent danger because of COVID-19 exposure, you can tell um, that person or anybody with the ability to stop that threat. You can locally, notify the local police department, you know, or whomever, you know, healthcare agency, or if you need to notify somebody who, you know, was was just might have might have just been exposed, you can let them know anytime you need to prevent a serious and imminent threat. And you know, because COVID 19 affects people different ways and there is a potential for You know, serious repercussions. We can let people know. In terms of the media and others not involved in the patient's care, you need patient authorization. That's the bottom line. We don't go uh, talking to the media about what has just occurred. You know, when those patients got treated for Ebola, Emory University got patient permission and expressed patient authorization um, in order to share that information with the news media, so not talking to the news media about these issues.
1: Ryan, wouldn't be a good response. The media would say, "Talk to the health department or the public agency involved with this." Uh, in terms of releasing information, the public health authorities wouldn't they sure, be a good source for the media refer them to them?
0: Sure, absolutely. You can refer to you know the public health department. Uh, most organizations, too, are going to have a public information officer, and that can be the same as your privacy officer. So if the news media approaches anybody, the message to your folks on the street is, hey, you can call our public information officer about that, and they can um, handle that request. But yeah, we're not releasing information to the news media without uh, authorization, and then we should always be following what 's called the minimum necessary whenever we 're disseminating information you know only the minimum necessary to convey what we need to if we just need to say suspected covid nineteen patient you know and 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 that's it we don 't need to go into other details and that's all we should say if we don't need to use the patient 's name over the air, airwaves that 's fine um, we we 're always using um, you know, reasonable safeguards, if you don't need to use those identifiers, as I just mentioned, don't. And, you know, you have to apply those administrative technical And physical safeguards as well, you know, make sure we're extra safe, especially if we're going to, you know, paper reports or something like that, being extra careful with this information, just like we would any other protected health information. Often the question that we get is uh, individuals working from home. You know, can we work from home? There's going to be a lot of people working remotely and, in fact, sometimes ordered to do so in certain states. I just read that Governor Cuomo Ordered that at least half of workforces have to remain working remotely if it's feasible to do that. Um, if we're working remotely, we're always connecting through secure HTTPS sites. So that S meaning secure, and you're always going to see the secure moniker down in the, the right, right-hand right corner or, or in the upper right-hand corner. If we're connecting to the server VPN connections, and then your policy should be you do not Ever store things locally on your Mm -hmm. computer and dragging it to the recycle bin, folks, does not make it go away. (laughs) And then the way that the way that we track that too is we can run audit logs on all that activity on our system, both on our server and within applications. So you need to remind folks that hey, we're monitoring that activity and we can check to make sure that um, you're you're taking appropriate steps. There is a waiver in effect, however, this is a very limited waiver, and I want to make clear that, you know, they've carved out some exceptions to some of the rules. This waiver only applies to hospitals and only 72 hours at, from the time that the hospital implements its disaster protocol. So if you work for a hospital-based organization, that's who this waiver applies to. I'm happy to take questions to this during the Q&A session as well.
1: Okay, excellent. Very good. Uh Let's just spend a minute or two here on the last subject for today's webinar, patient destination and reimbursement issues. We're going to cover this very quickly. You have the materials there, and then we want to open it up for questions because we know we're going to have a lot of questions. Keep in mind that Medicare pays for transports only to cover destinations. That's hospitals, SNFs, critical access hospitals, home to the patient's home for discharge if they require an ambulance, dialysis center, as we know. Influenza screening or treatment sites that are not hospitals or SNFs or critical access hospitals are not covered destinations under Medicare, under Medicare, but other insurers may pay. You got to check with them. Also, we're going to find you're going to be transporting patients to more distant facilities because your community hospital might be filled up, uh, EDs overcrowded. You may end up going further distances than normal. And typically, that's going to be covered if you could show and document that, you know, that is, in fact, the closest appropriate facility that's 40 miles away because all the other ones are not accepting patients. Uh, just this week, uh, of course, HHS issued Section 1135 waivers and waivers of some of the uh, provisions of the regulations related to uh, COVID-19. Uh, there's materials on that. The government has always been uh, has provided these waivers in the past with the uh, Hurricanes, Katrina, Harvey, the H1N1 of about 10 years ago. So, we've had some limited waivers where there's been some leeway given in terms of patient destinations, returning patients back to their original destination if they had to be evacuated. And one area we're going to see is treatment sites that are off site. We're going to see mash tents come up. We're going to see, uh, you know, screening patients at another location, perhaps. That is permissible under these waivers as long as the hospital applies for the waiver. And then that uh, screening facility that might be offsite, as long as it's connected with the hospital, and that then becomes an approved destination for an ambulance transport under the regulations. But again, the hospital has to uh, make sure that's designated and it is a part of the hospital. So I think we're going to see a lot of uh, that going on. Also, we've got state-related waivers. We've seen some states waiving staffing requirements. Uh, Some require two EMTs. A state might say, okay, we'll go with one EMT and a driver, Uh, equipment protocols, and even looking at non-traditional ambulance transports. Lastly, just want to mention patient assignment of benefit signatures. Yes, we need to get patient signatures to assign benefits. The required paperwork that's necessary. Uh, We certainly know that every patient should sign unless they're physically or mentally incapable of signing. And yes, patients with infectious disease are suspected of having uh, COVID-19, as long as there are infection control procedures that are required, such as barrier precautions. We have a patient who's coughing and hacking with a fever and and short of breath, and, and they have to have a mask and gloves perhaps. Uh, these are things that would indicate why the patient uh, could be seen as physically incapable of signing, okay? We've got to make sure this is documented. We cannot let this be a reason that, you know, you just put puts patient unable to sign, COVID, you know, putts-COVID, that isn't going to cut it. You've got to have good documentation to support Those infection control procedures, hopefully supported by uh, uh, clinical signs and symptoms that are documented. And of course, your crew members can never sign the patient's name. uh, And in cases where patients are incapable of signing, other representatives can sign. And there's also an exception for ambulance services as well and for hospital-owned ambulance services. So we're not going to get into the weeds on that. I'm sure we'll have some questions on that. Yes, we're going to see some overcrowding. We're going to see diversions, increased diversions. MTALA requires hospitals to do uh, immediate uh, screenings uh, of patients and to provide stabilization prior to transport. Well, guess what? That just got waived. The CMS or the HHS secretary is waiving some of those MTALA restrictions. requirements on hospitals. So we've always had this problem with wall time, waiting at the wall while you get a nurse or somebody to take responsibility for the patient. We think that may decrease to some extent because we may be dealing with things outside of the emergency department, uh, screening patients outside that facility, maybe being triaged in other areas. So uh, hospitals are working diligently to put in place alternative methods of, of accepting patients into the emergency department. And lastly, I guess I'll just add that this trying time that we're in today, we need to support each other. Uh, everybody's nerves are going to be on edge. Uh, we're, we're, we're working very long hours, everybody, and, and we just need to look out for each other, support each other, ask each other how we're doing and and, and what we can do to help our, our fellow EMS uh, professionals on a day-to-day basis during this uh, difficult time. And there are resources out there for support, uh, certainly, uh, your, your organization has them, and uh, these are the things that we need to consider and think about because we have to protect our own if we're going to be, be able to do a good job in protecting those patients. So we also want to thank you all for what you do for your communities. I uh, want to thank uh, our co-presenters today, Scott, Ryan, myself. There's our contact information, uh, and now we're going to open it up for uh, questions. Back to you, folks at EMS World.
2: Thank you very much to Scott, Ryan, and Steve. Certainly a lot to digest here. So um, we'd like to open up the discussion now to the audience. We're having a lot of questions come in. And so at this point, feel free to uh, take it away.
4: Okay. Thanks, John. It's great to be here. And uh, we're here in our office in Pennsylvania. The governor has shut everything down except uh, non-life-sustaining businesses, so apparently uh, that means uh, we're not a life-sustaining business, but we, we're here today anyway. Uh, we got a lot of questions, tons of questions, actually, uh, and we're gonna, I'm going to moderate those and try to uh, organize them in a way that uh, we hit the main points. We're going to go for about half an hour and see where we are. We want to get as many questions as we can. First question out of the box, an employee refuses to allow a facility – Uh, to take his or her temperature as they're bringing a patient into the facility or out of the facility. The employee says, it's my constitutional rights. You can't touch me. You can't – I'm not – shouldn't be required uh, for you to take my temperature. Uh, What do you think about that one, Scott?
5: So um, we've gotten this question a couple of times, and I I hate to tell that employee that in in really virtually every instance, and in particular during this pandemic – I would suggest that that the employee is is heading down the wrong path. Um, really, one you have to ask yourself, what is the true objection to taking a temperature? It is non invasive. It's not like taking a blood test or something like that. So, um, this is similar to the employees who have refused to shave their beards. Um, my suggestion to that employee is. Um, you know, you need to to sort of understand the reality that we're living in, and, and, and you need to let them take your temperature and as well as, by the way, shave your beard.
4: Right, and we would add too that the facility has every right to refuse access of personnel who refuse to meet reasonable requirements like that. And you know, under the ADA and the disability laws, as we know, taking temperatures of employees, for example, could be seen as a medical exam. But in this case, now that we're in a nationwide pandemic, State of emergency has been declared. Uh, Some of those ADA limitations on making inquiries employees have been relaxed. So it is permissible also for your employer, your EMS uh, employer to take your temperature every day, as long as they're doing it consistently with everybody. That's the key. We don't want to discriminate on any other, any basis at all, as long as it's a consistent policy. Another question just came up. uh, Someone asked, uh, you know, normally we'd get paid during, uh, uh, truck cleaning, completing reports, and things like that. Does that only apply during this pandemic? Answer is no. That's always been under the Fair Labor Standards Act as a requirement. You have to pay people when they perform any work that benefits the employer. And if you have to keep people overtime, over their normal shift, you got to pay them for that, regardless if you think they're working too slow, uh, not doing what they're supposed to do, as long as they're performing work for the employer. And we're going to see more of that now uh with all the added duties that are happening uh ryan we got a question out of. go ahead scott
5: i just wanted to add one part um there's uh, there's another part of that is in one of the questions later on down the list is um my employer is requiring me to sort of doff my uniform and clean before i leave the place uh the workplace Yes. Yeah. and can they require that and the answer is yes they can and in addition to that getting at the compensation piece any time spent donning or doffing or preparing for your work or preparing to leave your work, you know, as required by the employer must be compensated under the Fair Labor Standards Act.
4: Absolutely. Okay. We got a a privacy question here and a concern uh, uh, about hospital, not notifying uh, EMS providers or the EMS agency that they transported a COVID-19 case. Ryan, you want to comment on that?
6: Sure, yeah, we've been getting a lot of these questions coming in, you know, disseminating information if they've potentially been exposed. Uh, The hospital can and they should be sharing that information. Um, There are a couple permissions that permit um, under HIPAA that permits them to do that specifically, you know, if they're a uh, mandated reporter, if they're authorized by law to notify individuals, and uh, providers are typically the ones who are authorized by law and even mandated by law to notify. Um, anybody who is suspected of having contact and been exposed to that. And they're going to – should be notifying the uh, Department of Health as well and whatever the local health department is so that they can disseminate that information um, to those providers as quickly as possible. And talking about within your own agency, obviously, you know, if if any of your um, individuals have potentially been exposed uh, to COVID-19, it's okay to notify the other folks within your agency about that potential exposure – you know, to disseminate that, and then those employees uh, would maybe possibly need to quarantine as well. Uh, Typically, EMS are not the individuals who are authorized by law to notify the general public, however, about that sort of exposure. Um, They would notify, you know, the providers uh, who receive the patient, but they should uh, be notifying, you know, the regional and regional council. And health department, but they wouldn't go back, for example, to all the neighbors and let the neighborhood know Mm -hmm. that, hey, you know, the neighbor uh, potentially had COVID-19, that would be up to the public health department, and they should be reporting that information uh, to the appropriate parties.
4: Absolutely. It's really the health department's Mm responsibility to make those notifications. But there's an interesting provision under HIPAA, as we said, that you can disclose as as a covered entity... Uh, protected health information to avert a serious threat to health or safety. We haven't seen that really come into play much, Ryan, have we? But now we've got a a national emergency and and you're allowed to do that uh, if it, you know, if if it would lessen a serious and imminent threat to a person or the public and that person reasonably believes uh, that it would do so and that you give that information to somebody who you think could actually prevent or or lessen that threat. you want to comment on that? Because that's really an area that we're seeing being used here.
6: Sure, absolutely. You know, if you think that somebody has been exposed and they, you think that there's an immediate threat to them as well, um, you would be able to, under that exception, use discretion. And, in fact, there is a good faith uh, presumption under this exception as well. As long as you're acting in good faith and you feel like somebody has been exposed and you need to let them know right away, you can do that. Um, You can also notify other parties, you know, police departments, things like that. So, if other departments are responding with you as well, you would need, uh, you would let the uh, police department, the fire department know about the the suspected uh, COVID nineteen patient, you know, because they wouldn't necessarily be exercising universal precautions when they showed up on scene. So, anybody within the vicinity of that patient, uh, you can let them know, and, and HIPAA permits you to do that.
4: Here's a question uh, for you, Scott, related to uh, an employee's out on a cruise and uh, just got back and it has to limit their contact for 14 days. Are employers required to pay the employee for those 14 days that they can't come to work because they're uh, mm. under, you know, self-imposed or, or, you know, quarantine, if you will? Uh, what's your comment on that?
5: Yeah, so... Um The the provisions that we spoke about, the part of the stimulus package under H.R. uh, 6201, uh, won't become effective. While it was passed earlier this week, it won't become effective until April 2nd. Um, The discussion or the belief is in in the drafting of the regulations between now and the time that uh, hopefully that we get before April 2nd, we'll see whether this is going to be retroactive, which I believe it is. Um, but so just absent any of the potential federal relief, so the employee who returns from traveling abroad um, under this uh, 6201, if in fact it is retroactive, would include on the sick time, um, provided, of course, that um, as we talked about during early in the presentation, that um, under the, um, the legislative language that the Secretary of Labor may draft language that would allow an employer who of EMS response personnel to exclude from the definition um, any EMS re- response personnel for uh, those provisions. But absent the federal piece, uh, employers need to take a look to any one, any existing state paid leave. Um, so for example, in the state of New York, um, Governor, I'm uh, sorry, the city of New, uh, Governor Cuomo, let me back up, The governor of New York passed emergency sick leave yesterday, but one of the provisions in that leave that was um, passed yesterday says that any employee or any employee who was out traveling on their own and essentially upon return was placed into precautionary um, quarantine would not be eligible for paid leave under this new New York state paid leave. So then reverting back to any other many states in the country do have paid uh, mandatory paid leave as part of a state paid leave, existing paid leave, in that instance, the employer employee would likely be eligible under that situation to uh, avail themselves of their existing paid leave benefits. And then, of course, for those employers that don't have mandated state paid leave, if the employer had any other paid sick leave benefits that they offer to their staff, they would need to be able to make that available to them um, in this instance.
4: Great. Excellent. We also had a question about states relaxing their EMS regulations for staffing, equipment, sort of those things, like if a state might require uh, an EMT and a paramedic, and they say, okay, now you only need one paramedic, how does it affect the individual's license? Uh, Well, it really shouldn't affect the individual's license. This is a special exception uh, under the period of time that that particular state would allow for that relaxation of the regulations, so it really shouldn't have any impact on that. Uh, Scott, what about labor unions and how do they tie into this? Uh, What should employers be doing and in talking? Should they be talking to their unions now about implementing policies like work-at-home policies and things like that?
5: Yes, for sure. Great question. So um, there are provisions within the uh, the the act that was passed earlier this week in the stimulus uh, uh, package that relates to multi-employer bargaining agreements, and certainly. Um, for folks who are members of unions, your employer should be speaking with your union representatives anyways. By this point, um, oftentimes as as um, union or labor organizations are negotiating their collective bargaining agreements, often we don't ever sort of contemplate a, a pandemic as we're experiencing today. In fact, I think for most of us, we've probably never seen anything even remotely close to this in our entire career. So this is going to be something that may or may not be contemplated during the collective bargaining piece. So you, employer and, and labor union should be working together to make sure that they're providing able so that the, that the organization can still provide and respond to um, providing health care to folks out on the, out in the field. But then also making sure that there are provisions to protect those EMS responders who frankly are at a far greater risk of contracting or being exposed to the illness. So um, there should just be a great and open and ongoing dialogue. There should be regular daily conversations between union and employer.
4: Absolutely, and related to the uh, questions of, uh, turning s- regarding state laws and what about people functioning across state lines. Oh, Doug Wolfberg has just walked into the room, my partner. He's very active in the EMS Compact. you want to mention that, Doug, and what well, that's
7: about? Thanks, Steve. A for effort on the drama. I've I actually been listening the whole time uh, just to, to learn stuff from you guys. You, you, you guys are experts. Uh, one thing that I've been privileged to work on is to be counseled to the – our firm is counseled to the interstate compact called Replica, which is Recognition of EMS Personnel Licensing Interstate Compact. On Monday of this week, the compact was declared operational There are, in light of the COVID crisis. There are 20 states who have signed on to the compact by passing a state law to join it, and that legislation has now given – uh, EMTs, paramedics, and licensed EMS practitioners the ability to practice across state lines under conditions that are specified in the statute. So that's a, a big development and that was declared operational this past Monday in light of the uh, crisis. Uh, for those of you who are curious what states, uh, check, just put an EMS replica. You'll find the uh, compact website on the, uh, on the web. And if your state is not listed, uh, once we get past this crisis, or maybe while we're in it, um, it's a really good time for state leaders, state ambulance associations, state EMS associations to mobilize and get their state legislatures to pass the compact because uh, it's, it's something that was um, really uh, carefully put in place and then was put active this week because of this. So this is gonna let me jump in guys. awesome, thank you, Doug. That's
4: excellent. and this is going to be a real impetus for a lot of change in our society in terms of dropping a lot of barriers. in fact, CMS issued an, uh, a waiver that allows physicians now to function across state lines you know usually you have to be licensed in that particular state they're they're waiving that. Uh, another question came in uh, concerning employees of pre-existing conditions such as heart disease or other things that would be considered a, a disability under ADA, do you still have an obligation under this circumstance to provide them with the normal reasonable accommodations? The answer is yes, yes, and yes. You still have an obligation. In fact, even if you have that person work at home, you've got the obligation to provide reasonable accommodation there. Now, what about situations? Are you required to let somebody with COVID-19 work? No. That person, number one, pro- it, it's seen as a transitory uh illness, so it's probably not a disability under the law. And secondly, that person would pose a direct threat. This is an area we're going to see that direct threat defense uh, certainly come into play because that person could be a direct threat to others in the workplace. Now, Ryan, what about people, uh, employees, EMS fuel providers, and one of them gets, you know, is diagnosed positive COVID-19, and the other employees say, we want to know who it is. We want to know. You know, sure. the employer says, oh, you know, uh, you know, somebody, you know, got diagnosed with it. Now what? Now what's the deal there?
6: Sure. So, you know, the employer um, would have to let them know if they were suspected of having been exposed to that employee. So the employer should be forthcoming with that information. And if they were potentially exposed, it would fall under, you know, one of those disclosures to prevent serious and imminent threat to those employees. If the employee, let's say the employee, you know, went on a cruise and called up and said, hey, by the way, I took the one-week carnival cruise that turned into three, and now I want you to know, you know, um, that I have COVID-19, but I, you know, don't want you to let other workers know. In that case, they wouldn't necessarily have to let them know, um, you know, if they wanted to keep that information private, uh, because those employees aren't having suspected of of being exposed to that, you know. But here, you know... uh, in best practice is to inform affected co-workers without identifying the employee, you know, recommend that they speak to the health care provider and self-quarantine for 14 days. So whenever possible, we try to protect the identity identity of that employee, you know, but we do need to let employees know if they uh, have potentially been exposed uh, to an individual that has COVID-19. So,
4: Great. Yeah. Excellent. Uh- Another question, what about if the employer has policies in place, and now we have new federal laws here related to leave of absence, paid time off, things like that, you know, what prevails? Well, you can have policies based on those laws, but the the law is going to prevail. Your policies in your workplace have to uh, be consistent with the law. Um, okay, let's see. What other questions we got online here? Uh, Is it illegal? Is it legal for an employer requiring an employee to work from home to use their personal computer or or cell phone and personal internet service without compensation for that equipment? What do you think of that, Ryan?
6: Well, if you're going to permit them to work, uh, you're going to have to compensate them for that. And then that also implicates, you know, security issues as well. Uh, The government has relaxed, uh, you should know this, they have relaxed the requirements concerning telehealth, and they said Mm -hmm. that you can use non public facing. Uh, telehealth options, and some of those including um, Apple FaceTime, Facebook Messenger, Google Hangouts, and Skype, because they want to encourage folks uh, to get triaged outside of the hospital. So if we need to call- contact the hospital and have the uh, ER doctor talk to the patient over FaceTime or something like that, they said that they are not going to impose penalties at this time for u- using those sorts of uh of application, so we shouldn't in our normal course be using that if we're going to have the patient you know real-time with the uh, doctor we should be using a secure application but during this period you can if the doctor wants to talk to the patient use things like Skype Google Hangouts Facebook Messenger by the way you can work remotely again using secure connections connecting over secure HTTPS protocols and VPN channels and not storing anything locally by the way anything that you come into contact with that is considered to be sensitive health information doesn't lose its status as protected health information simply because you're working from your home. It's still PHI. It's got to be protected in the same manner as Mm -hmm. information that Mm -hmm. you would have encountered within the workplace.
4: Absolutely. In terms of equipment, the employer should provide the equipment. That's what it really comes down to, Uh, and uh, that's the safest place to be with that. Um, Okay, let's see. Should we discontinue volunteers or students riding on the trucks now to limit the possibility of contracting uh, uh, coronavirus, Scott? What do you think of that?
5: Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty straightforward. This one almost hits the common sense side. If in uh, for the most part, I would eliminate any additional folks that don't need to be there. Um, I would eliminate them <laughs> to reduce that exposure. Um, but, you know, in the situation in some of the states where they have waived the staffing requirements as to who could be possibly a second person on the truck. If, in fact, your organization is struggling, I know we already have a nationwide EMS uh, personnel staffage Staffing shortage. You know, if in fact you had someone who you were going to use under that relaxed staffing waiver, again, though, keep in mind, uh, would one make sure that those folks are um, and have gone through the training relative to infection control, bloodborne, airborne pathogens, as well as how to don and doff PPE? Um, but to the extent necessary, as few people, no additional, you know, no third riders, that kind of stuff. I yes. uh, would be reducing that. No students.
4: Absolutely. Someone asked a question, what about the employee comes to work displaying flu-like symptoms, fever, cough, shortness of breath during this pandemic? Uh, is, can the employer send them home? Absolutely, they can. Uh, the employer has an obligation there even to check and see and ask employees. This is an area where you can ask employees, are you having symptoms of flu, fever, et cetera? Employers can screen people with a temperature gun as they come in if they wish to, as we said. Um, so, uh, that's a good point as well,
7: but,
1: okay.
4: And
5: one, one quick point to make there though, is that if in fact, you do have an employee who reports and is ill, you may, and this has been covered in several spots, you may in states that have a requirement for reporting pay, have to provide that person, um, with a certain number of hours of reporting pay, um, in the event that they appear and then you send them home, um, just to be sure so that you don't run into any, any issues there.
4: Good point. Someone asked this question, which is a very good one. We're seeing shortages of PPE. What's the obligation of the employer to provide PPE, masks, uh, gloves, etc.? And secondly, what if the employer can't provide them? What do we do? I'll take the first one because it's easy. Scott, I'll give you the hard one. Uh, does the employer have to provide it? Yes, absolutely. Under the OSHA bloodborne pathogens guidance, yes, absolutely. You got to have masks, gloves, etc. You've got to have a policy and procedure in place, training, and so forth. So they, they're obligated under also the general duty clause to provide you know, the equipment necessary to protect employees from the spread of contagious disease. Now, Scott, the hard one. What if the, what if the employer's got a short supply? It doesn't have them, or the stuff's outdated. We dealt with that a couple years ago with the outdated drug situation. What
5: do you think? Well, so there, there have been some um, relaxing of the standards as it relates to, let's say, for example, expired N95. But really, this comes down to whether the, um, an employer an employee has the right to refuse to work when, in fact, there is a great danger to themselves um, and they risk il- you know, illness or injury. Um, I think, you know, we have to use the CDC's guidance as of that, that has been uh, out there right now relative to, um, you know, to, to uh, using and having the appropriate equipment. We know that there's an, uh, an extreme shortage. I know that many of the groups have been working um, trying to get preferential um, treatment as it relates to the distribution of any medical supplies and equipment. Um, but, you know, fundamentally, we wouldn't want anyone doing anything that would place them in jeopardy. But just to be clear, I've had numerous people who have appropriately been wearing their PPE and have transported patients who were known to have COVID-19. That does not mean that you've been exposed provided your PPE was uh, is fitted appropriately and you were wearing it, and you doffed it appropriately. Um, so, so because we've had some folks saying that they want to be put into quarantine following the transport of a patient with COVID-19. But if in fact you don't have the appropriate equipment, you ha- would have the right um, to refuse to do um, to to work that day.
4: Great, excellent answer, Scott. Let's talk about uh, screenings and, and transporting patients with suspected uh, coronavirus. Uh, one of the things we've seen frequently is patients asking uh, to be transported for screening, even if they're asymptomatic. You know, how do paramedic-initiated refusals fit into this? I mean, uh, number one, you got to work with your medical director here, because under the current conditions we are in, folks, you have the right to come up with policies on how to pre-screen people so that you don't have to transport patients to a hospital. We're going to flood our hospitals if we take every person with the sniffles and a fever who thinks they might have coronavirus to a hospital. We're going to see off-site or next to the emergency department tents and mass units being set up where you can take patients to those screening facilities. There might be off-site places to do those screenings. Should you be taking them? What uh, Work with your medical director, you probably shouldn 't be taking them by ambulance if the patient is ambulatory uh, with mild symptoms, you should be encouraging to go by other means, uh, and I think that 's something you've got to decide with your medical director what 's appropriate what 's not. Any other comments on that, gentlemen?
6: Yeah, this is a really good point. Uh, this is an issue that we need to start that we need to address now. This is an action item, folks. Uh, we need to think about that real contingency that folks are going to be asking. You know, we don't want to be caught in that situation. So in some cases, your medical director is going to have wide latitude in terms of developing protocols to screen those patients. Sometimes they're a little bit hamstrung because of the statewide protocols or regional protocols, and that would, uh, you know, you would have to get an exception to that. But this is definitely an action item that we need to jump on immediately. We need to, the goal is going to be keeping patients to the extent possible who really don't need um, treatment at these facilities, out of these facilities, and screening them yeah. ahead of time. We want to also consider, like I mentioned before, the telehealth option as well. So start talking yes. to your providers, to your physicians. You know, we have that waiver now by the government. They're not going to enforce if we're using FaceTime and other mechanisms. So we need to be thinking about those options immediately today.
4: Absolutely. This Here's another really good question. It indicates We're in a changed world. Our county emergency management agencies mandating first responders to stage prior to EMS arrival. Well, we all know we've got tiered response, multiple agencies responding. Look, let's face it, you know, we've all been volunteer firefighters and paramedics and EMTs. Sometimes there's too many people at the scene. Why infect them all? Get somebody to the scene, and you should have working out a protocol and policy in your community to send one person in or two people in, and then assess the situation. Don't send six people into somebody's house uh, for, for a call for a sick person when you don't know what you're walking into. Assess it, stage people away from the area of, of infection potential, and then go from there. But get somebody in there right away, but just don't send the whole cavalry in. Scott, any comments on that? You're still active as a volunteer.
5: Yeah, actually, uh, my fire chief and uh, and our training officers covered this this past Monday night at our at our um, call fire department drill, um, suggesting that you know there is common and, and I know often you will see a whole number of folks show up to a call and everybody wants to take part in it, but this is one of those instances in which one person to the extent possible goes in and in fact in my um, specific area our regional dispatch center has when possible requested the patient to come outside. Um, my yeah. fire chief wasn't too thrilled with that, but has asked the patient to come outside to the extent that they're able, and then really to limit and reduce closing that walkthrough, making sure to the extent that you can seal between the front and the back of the truck, and just really limiting the number of people. This is one of those things that I think for years, we have all known that the risk exists, but truly haven't appreciated it. This is one of those times where um, we really need to be, to be as conscientious as possible.
4: Right. All right. Here's another one. Shifting to FLSA and pay. Some crew members are asking me about hazard pay. How do I reply? Was there any legal obligation under the law to pay employees hazard pay for this duty in this environment we're in? The answer is no. Uh, There's no obligation there. Your obligation is to pay them their wages, to pay them overtime, uh, and to pay them properly when they're on call or if they're doing anything that uh, is primarily benefiting the employer. Here's a good question for you, Scott, related to um, uh, N95 masks. You and I talked about this the other day. OSHA requires fit testing on uh, masks that we might use. Uh, is there a waiver for that? I understand there's been some relaxation of that, isn't there, Ben?
5: So, yeah, there's been a relaxation. There are two standards for fitting face masks. One is a quantitative and one is a qualitative. Most of us have gone through the qualitative, which is where we put the hood, they they puff the uh, saccharin. Um, and, and the, you know, sort of the wearer of the mask tells you whether they taste it or not. Really, the relaxation was essentially allowing, you know, even those, or even those entities that had to do quantitative, which is, is not a self-determined, um, ex, you know, a uh, seal determinant. Um, so really we were already at the more relaxed qualitative, but I have had, again, going back to those folks who have beards. It's been incredibly popular to have beard. I understand it's incredibly popular to have a beard. Um, However, recognizing that if you are being fit tested and you have a beard and they puff the saccharin and you can taste it, recognize that means if you answer that you can't taste it and that you're making a steal, that one, you're being dishonest, which would fundamentally be grounds for termination in some organizations. But number two, more importantly, You're, you're, um, you're knowingly walking into a hazardous situation. And for all those folks who were just the one end of the question, can I refuse to expose myself because I'm concerned about the hazard? To the other end where I've had people saying, can I either waive it or I'll just tell you that I don't taste the saccharin? To me, those are two very, very foolish, foolish thought processes. When it comes down to this, those beards will grow back in a period of a couple of weeks. So the qualitative thing, there have been some relaxation, but really you want to make sure that you've never been more on board to make sure that you can make a seal with that N95 respirator.
4: Great answer, Scott. Super. Um, What if an employee refuses to work due to fear of getting or bringing COVID-19 home to their family? Does that employee have that right? Absolutely that employee has the right to refuse to work the employer also has the right not to pay them or to terminate their employment in most cases unless they're protected by collective bargaining. Uh, that is not a reasonable f- fear in, in in the eyes of the law. Uh, you know, the, as we talked about with OSHA, if you have fear, you know, a legitimate fear that there's something unsafe that the employer's doing that could harm you, that's different, okay? Then you have the right to object, and potentially there's the right... Uh, you have uh, in, under the anti retaliation provisions because they can't fire you for a legitimate uh, concern about your safety. also, by the way, from the standpoint of unionized workforces, employees folks have the right to discuss among themselves workplace issues, pay each other's pay they they have the right to get together to discuss issues related to workplace safety and to to ask employers questions about that. You cannot discriminate against uh, employees. Uh, for doing those sorts of things, okay? And that is, that is a right uh, that the National Labor Relations Act uh, pr- provides to, to all employees, basically. Uh, the right to gather for mutual aid or protection, in addition to the right to uh, uh, negotiate or collectively bargain with the employer. So that's an area of the National Labor Relations Act that does cover all em- employees. So we have to be sensitive to that. Okay. Ryan, in terms of uh, HIPAA and uh, sharing information between uh, facilities, you know, no. what, you know, what, what's your comments on that in this era we're in? Any thoughts on that?
6: Sure. I mean, obviously, we can share uh, any information about suspected COVID-19 uh, with any facilities that we're transporting the patient to. Any facilities with a need to know about the patient's suspected COVID-19 or confirmed COVID-19 status. Uh, we're, we're permitted to share that information. We need to be sensitive whenever possible. If we don't need to use the patient's name, you know, out in the open or something like that, then fine, but to the extent possible. And when we're responding to calls, a lot of the uh, questions that I've been getting recently are, you know, hey, sometimes the fire department shows up on our call, sometimes police department, how do we communicate it to them? And um, in, in, if they show up on scene, you can communicate to them, hey, this patient is suspected COVID-19 patient. Uh, you might want to hang back in this case. Um, And some agencies are coming up with, and I mentioned this on on the webinar today, uh, they're coming up with a generic code that they can disseminate from the PSAP, and the PSAP would issue a code that would be commonly understood by all first responders within that community and that jurisdiction uh, to mean suspected COVID-19. Now, I don't want you code should not be, you know, COVID-19.
4: Yeah, that would be a giveaway. Sure, sure. So the (laughs)
6: code should be something generic, but that is – Uh, disseminate to all uh, first responders in the region so that they know uh, what they're dealing with. It's perfectly permissible. And by the way, you go back to that health and safety, you know, serious threat to health and safety. Anytime that we would need to use that information over the airwaves to prevent um, harm to an individual, prevent potential exposure, we are permitted to do that if there are dire circumstances.
4: Okay, great. Here's a question uh, somebody asked. My dog Rover, what about him? Uh, does he is he at risk of getting COVID-19? Well, we're not veterinarians, so we don't know the answer to that one, although we're hearing they're probably not able, but they're not sure. No, they
6: do have a mask. I think they it's, mask it's for not the, the N95. I think it's the K9 K9, mask.
4: K95 mask. There, K9, you go. there we go. All right, just to follow up, Scott, on the kind about beards, what if the employee throws back religious reasons, a religious objection? Can they get that? Great
5: Yep. Great question. And this we do run into this from time to time. Anyone who has a sincerely held religious or other, uh, let's say, medical reason, for example, certain um, groups of folks when they are close shaven will end up with um, cystic acne issues. um, And medically, they are recommended not to be clean shaven. That doesn't mean they can't be very closely shaven, and so in those instances just like as as with the, uh, um, the ADA you would need to enter into the interactive process to determine if there is a reasonable accommodation that you can provide that person that would allow them to perform the essential functions of the job so in this instance I have had situations where folks, because of religious beliefs, have said they cannot be clean shaven. We, um, you know, we sort of went through this process, which in some states you're required to document, and it's just good practice to do that—to document the back and forth uh, in that interactive process—to say, okay, well, could you be very closely uh, a very closely trimmed beard? And if so, let's try and do the qualitative fit testing to determine if, in fact, you you sense that taste of saccharin. If you can make the seal with a very closely trimmed beard, then that could be a reasonable accommodation. Alternatively, there are full head hoods that are a bit more expensive, and not that the employer would have to provide these to all employees, just those as potentially an accommodation. However, not all accommodations are required if, in fact, it would create an undue hardship. And an undue hardship typically is viewed as involving great difficulty or great expense. So in most instances, if, if you had someone who um, couldn't shave because of a religious or medical reason, you'd go through that interactive process, you'd document that interactive process, you'd come to a reasonable accord to allow that person to perform the essential functions of the job, and then you would move on.
4: Absolutely. And also too the the belief the religious belief that the employee has has to be a good faith, reasonably held belief. If they just come out of the blue and say, Oh, they come up with some crazy reason, courts have not allowed those cases to go anywhere, basically. Uh what about the signatures, provider signatures or uh, patient signatures, uh, you know, concerns here. Especially The question here relates to transporting repetitive patients to that analysis. Do you need to get the patient's signature every time? Well, first of all, I answer no, because if you get the signature once of the patient, that allows you to submit claims for subsequent transports, okay? So that's one aspect of it. But the big question we get here is, as we said briefly in this uh, webinar, what, you know, is is... COVID-19 exposure or symptoms, does that make them incapable of signing? Well, technically, no. It doesn't make them physically or mentally incapable of signing a form. But the reality is if, they've got, if you've got legitimate infection control policies and procedures in place with that patient, they've got symptoms, you need to be documenting that. And, yes, in, in those instances, if it's properly documented, that could be sufficient to say that the patient is physically incapable of signing. But you, got, you can't just put COVID, puts COVID, okay? Uh, now, we're querying CMS. We've already gotten a response from them. They're, they're looking into the question uh, to see, you know, what their take is going to be on that. But bottom line, folks, the paperwork comes second. Patient care and your safety and protection comes first. You can get signatures later. Other people can sign on behalf of the patient, other representatives. And in some cases, if you're hospital-based, the hospital can sign. Uh, so, And you can also verify that the patient's incapable of signing and no one else is available or willing to sign, then, then you can still submit the claim later. So don't get all hung up on that one, okay? Focus on the patient care. Focus uh, on your safety. Ryan, you had a HIPAA-related question that came in.
6: Well, actually, no, this is actually along sort of the same lines here oh, and talking okay. about, you know, because the reason we get that signature so we can build their Medicare, you know, with respect to uh, Medicare, is Medicare relaxing any of the um, requirements concerning where we're taking the patient? In other words, let's say we start encountering hospitals that are full and can't take on other patients. Can we take them maybe to a lower acuity setting, mm-hmm. setting to be evaluated? Is, is Medicare going to pay for something like that? Currently, uh, we don't have any waivers to that effect, so uh, Medicare would not pay for that. That doesn't necessarily mean if you're out in the field, we're going to base our decision on where we're taking the patient based on whether or not Medicare is going to pay. We're going to take the patient wherever they can get evaluated, of course, and we'll sort that out on the back end. But currently, Medicare has not issued any waivers. They have done that in the past. You know, uh, when we had Hurricane Katrina, they would waive requirements concerning closest appropriate facility and where the patient was going to actually going to a hospital sometimes, but we will let you know, um, hang tight, we'll put information out if Medicare does uh, start making those sorts of waivers.
4: Yeah, things are happening at such a rapid pace, so stay tuned. Uh, another question, employee test positive, workers' comp claim, they submit workers' comp uh, and it's approved, they get they get time off benefit or uh, wage loss benefits, meaning they're getting paid. Uh, What about this new paid sick leave policy? Is that going to uh, mean they get both? Well, I think that depends. In my experience uh, dealing with workers' comp claims over the years, uh, some states have offset provisions that that require that pay from other benefits uh, offset some of the workers' comp payments. Do you want to comment on that, Scott? Because we haven't seen any of those yet, but we're going to see.
5: Yeah, so... Yeah, so generally speaking, in, in many states, so there's been a couple of questions regarding this, as we said, that generally just being exposed won't be enough, but if you in fact actually contract the illness, seek care, and there's a causal connection between the, uh, contracting the illness and your work duties, so in other words, you contract it in the course of duties, then it will be compensable, and to the extent that there are any, um Usually in workers' comp, there are, is a period of, of non-compensation that can be filled in with any paid leave. So in this instance, right. it would be- like that, seven that days federally. or something
4: like that in some states? Yep. Yeah.
5: yeah, And then mm-hmm. they would offset that workers' comp payment by any other paid leave that might be provided there to ensure that you received the maximum workers' comp amount.
4: Absolutely. What about a volunteer EMS provider who gets COVID? Because we haven't talked much about volunteers and, and you all are just so, we admire you so much being out there on the front line and, and not getting compensated. You're helping your community so well. What if you're a volunteer EMS a provider and you get COVID through a rescue call? How how are you covered under your, your other job? You know, Are you covered under your, your uh, other employer if you can't work? think, Scott? Well, I guess I, I would just jump in and say it probably would not be a workers' comp related injury for that other employer, that non-EMS no. employer, uh, Actually, because it probably...
0: Sorry.
5: Go ahead. Sorry, I was, on, I was on mute, but what would happen is, generally, we run into this a lot with people who have two jobs. Most folks in the EMS happen to have two jobs. So if I'm injured, in my secondary job, I, my, the workers' comp provider or the claims adjuster for, for the job in which I was injured will contact me and ask me, you know, one, will contact the employer that I was injured with to get the prior 52 weeks average pay, and then will also ask me to complete any other compensation that I've received from other employers for which they would confirm, and then the comp provider would provide me and ensure that I received the state-required amount as between the two jobs combined.
4: Right. Yeah, sense. and it depends. If it's two EMS jobs, then they're going to get together and share that responsibility. But if it's a you know volunteer as an EMS provider and then a non-EMS job, it's probably not going to be workers' comp under that non-EMS job. Uh, here's an interesting question. Uh, what about refusals to wear masks? Number one, what if an employee says, "Ah, I'm not going to wear that mask"? Can the employer terminate the employee and send them home, uh, or send them home? Absolutely, employees are required to follow the PPE provision requirements and so forth. So yes. Uh, They can't scream and say, No, I can't, you know, I'm not required to do that. It's my body. You can't tell me what to do. Now, what about a patient? What about a patient who refuses to wear the mask for barrier protection now because they are a COVID 19 patient? Can you refuse to transport that patient? Scott, what do you think of that?
5: Well, so um, the uh, HHS actually sent out an alert last week just reminding folks about the ACA Section 1557 provisions, which essentially provide that all all covered um, healthcare providers, which EMS would be, have to provide care without discriminating against any particular group of people. So, to refuse to transport a patient, if one of your employees refused to transport a patient because they, um, you know, let's say they belong to a particular group that this that, that that your employee perceived to have a greater risk, that would be actually would violate the law, and the employer would have to, of course, act. So um, you wouldn't really have the ability to refuse to transport a patient.
4: Very good. Do we know if EMS is going to be approved for telehealth services? Real quick, there's the uh, Medicare program, the ET3 program, where they are doing a pilot project that are they're looking, you know, 200 and some agencies have been approved for that pilot project to, to do uh, telehealth, treat in place, and treat to alternative destinations. We have a feeling there's going to be a lot more discussions with CMS here, and they're probably going on with our friends at the American Ambulance Association and CMS to look at expanding this into just the general world of, of Medicare outside. I think we're going to see a stepping up of this, but as of now, uh, nothing is approved in terms of payment with respect to telehealth services for, for EMS providers. Scott, do you want to shed any uh, light on that? And I can Yeah, no
5: yeah and so I know that the AAA is working actively to try and expand what um, CMS will reimburse for things like telehealth, um, treat and no transport and alternative destination. We'll see where we end up with that. I think we're in unprecedented time. The AAA had been working on this long before um, COVID-19 came along. And so now hopefully there'll be the urgency or the sense of urgency to act. Ryan, I don't know if you have anything extra to add.
6: Yeah, I do. I I have some insight on that. Uh, Typically with a telehealth transaction, the the folks, the person who's billing for that transaction for the actual consult, and there's a number of different things that they call that. They call it a a telehealth visit, a virtual check-in, or an e-visit. That's going to be a practitioner who bills for that time. However, there have been, and there was a program in Georgia where they allowed the EMS providers to actually bill for the origination site fee for telehealth. And it was like something like 25 bucks. So it's possible that if um, they relax the standards and uh, you know give us a code for that, uh, we could be able to bill for the origination site fee. And if the EMS agency employs somebody who qualifies as a practitioner, and that practitioner separately performs a telehealth service, that that practitioner could submit a claim um, for that time. But they would uh, submit that separately from the ambulance service. But It's possible that we could be reimbursed. As Steve said, these are, you know, really desperate times. And if it comes to the point where, I mean, hospitals are already at, Steve and I were talking about this yesterday, 80, 90, sometimes 100% capacity, as is, if we see an overflooding of hospitals and and drastic measures are called upon to keep patients out of hospitals, it's possible we could see um, additional reimbursement if we do provide that, that telehealth part for the EMS agency, which would be great for us.
4: Gotcha. What if an employer provides PPE and the employee just on that particular call doesn't wear it and contracts COVID? You know, something happened, the mask fell off, or he he left it somewhere. Uh, Is the employee still going to be covered? Well, if it's a workers' comp case, absolutely they're going to be covered, even if the employee didn't wear it. Uh, because the workers' comp system is typically a, a no-fault system, and as long as you contract a disease or, in, or suffer an injury in, in the workplace and it's within the scope of employment and uh, uh, you know it's peculiar to your particular industry, uh, it, it's going to be covered. Uh, let's see. Uh, will non-ambulance transport get reimbursed? Well, uh, as of now, Medicare does not pay for non-ambulance transport, uh, as we've talked about in the session, other insurers are starting to do that. We're also seeing some state Medicaid programs start to pay for uh, non-ambulance transport. Some states under Medicaid pay for wheelchair van transports, that sort of thing. But I think you're going to have to be talking with your individual insurers in your area because some of them may already cover some of this, but I think you're going to see a a lot of pressure on those insurers to start covering some of these alternative non-ambulance vehicles as well as alternative uh, destinations. There you go. Okay. Uh, Let's see. Any questions you can think of uh, in terms of HIPAA, privacy, or anything else, Ryan, off the top of your head?
6: No, I think it's, you know, pretty straightforward. What we need to tell providers on the street is, look, anytime somebody's going to get hurt and you need to let somebody know about it, um, you're allowed to disseminate necessary information. If you don't need to use identifiers, then don't. Uh, but, you know, HIPAA gives us wide latitude in terms of treating the patient, disseminating information right. for the protection of the community, for the individuals on the call, and, and really anybody else. So if anybody's going hurt.
4: Here's an excellent pay question. I don't really think we have addressed it earlier. Is there a limit to the number of hours or amount of days a first responder in any capacity could be forced to work by their employer during this current state of emergency? Quite frankly, uh, really no. There's, there's generally no limitation on that. There are a couple states that have some laws related to that. You've got to check state laws, but not many. Uh, pretty much an employer can require you to stay overtime, can mandate overtime, Uh, can uh, require you to work extra days. You know, it's a voluntary, you know, at-will situation. You don't have to work if you don't want to to work for that employer, and the employer doesn't have to keep you either. Uh, Scott, you want to comment on that, maximum hours and maximum days? We all know it's an impact on on safety, no question about it, but we're in different times now.
5: Yeah, and, of course, we know Dr. Patterson and that group regarding the fatigue studies. I think, you know, to the extent, you know, necessary, You know, we need to make sure that we're being safe. And, of course, it's, you know, one end of the spectrum the other. We all know the employee who will work 100 hours straight, but that's not certainly good for anybody. Um, Of course, we are in unusual times. So I think the important thing is to create operational policies that to the extent that you can, you need to stick with those, making sure that you're rotating crews in and out for rest periods. Um, you know, of course, also in those states where um, EMS are not exempt from break periods, making sure you're adhering to the break period and um, and really doing an assessment from time to time with your crews to make sure that they're doing OK, don't need to take a break or a rest. And uh, but outside of that, you're right. See, There really aren't any laws that say you cannot work, uh, you know, a maximum number of hours.
6: Great. Yeah, and we, like like Scott said, we're chiming in here from the legal perspective. Obviously, folks, um, we need to be really sensitive to that and checking in with our folks during this really stressful period of time. So we're, we're by no means advocating, you know, uh, making, forcing people to work right. ungodly Absolutely. amounts of hours. So um, we just want to make it clear what the law says in this aspect.
7: Yeah,
5: and just one last thing is making sure that people and employers are uh, – Reminding their staff about the available resources, things like EAP, yeah. other, um, you know, if there are workplace um, exercise facilities, making sure not only that those, of course, are disinfected, but that they're that they're, you know, giving their employees time to take a break and/or exercise, understanding the importance, right, creating areas for them to even just get out in an uninterrupted fashion. Because sometimes even a thirty-minute completely uninterrupted break, where you're not monitoring the radio, does wonders for refreshing somebody and getting them back, uh, back into into game shape. So just being conscious and continually monitoring your staff is critical.
4: Absolutely. Why don't we take a pause here for a moment and and uh, let our good folks at EMS World jump in here? We've been answering questions nonstop now for. 45 minutes or so. So what, what are your guys' thoughts? We can go a little bit longer if you wish to, or we, we are going to, this is going to be available. It's archived, by the way. Also, I want to emphasize to everybody listening or on the recording, our email addresses are in the materials. Send yeah. us an email. We're happy to answer uh, email questions from individuals. I will tell you, we're, we're, we're likely not to do a lengthy document answering every question. Uh, that's just beyond the scope of this thing, and it requires us to really put a, a lot of research into that, and right, frankly, we'd rather deal with people one-on-one with specific questions offline. Uh, we're also probably going to be doing additional webinars and podcasts related to these in many subjects, since we're way out in the whole new territory, folks, and again, uh, thank you for every, everything you all are doing out there. Uh, Hillary, would you wanna jump in or John?
2: Uh yeah, thanks, Steve. Um I think we're we're coming up on about uh, two hours here, so I think we can start wrapping up for today. I do uh want to mention a quick thank you to our sponsor, uh, Zoll for sponsoring the presentation today. And also, of course, a very special thank you to um to Scott, Ryan and Steve. You guys put together a terrific presentation on very short notice so we certainly appreciate that and by the looks of the numbers on this webinar um, our audience definitely appreciates it, it as well so um, thanks again we do have as Steve said we had a lot of questions coming in about uh, a recording of this presentation being made available so uh, yes we are archiving the recording of this webinar you'll be able to find that at emsworldcom slash webinars and um, On that note, I really want to encourage our audience to keep an eye on that page. Again, it's emsworld.com slash webinars. We are planning a series of uh, weekly webinars in the coming months on all different uh, coronavirus topics. So we have one scheduled for uh, airway management. That's next Friday, March 27th. Um, other presentations coming up, we have one on uh, PPE and decont- uh, decontamination practices, wellness and social health, and also one on online simulation. So there's a lot of information coming out. Um, keep an eye on that on that page for the new presentations and also the archives that are being made uh, available to you on a continual basis. Um, so at this point, yeah, um, Scott, Ryan and Steve, thanks again. Have any uh, do you have yeah. any closing comments for the audience? Yes. Uh, real quick before we sign off today? Go ahead.
4: Yeah, thanks, John. And we really want to shout out to you folks at EMS World. Uh, Hillary was on the phone with me right away about doing this. And uh, you guys are all over this. Uh, really appreciate it. I'm sure your, your, your audience appreciates it as well. And, and it's a great service you're doing for the EMS community. And I want to thank Scott, our colleague, and, and the good folks at the American Ambulance Association. This is one of many collaborative efforts we'll be uh, undertaking with the American Ambulance Association. When I say us, Paige, Wolfberg, and uh, Wirth, we really have a great team uh, uh, working on a lot of projects coming up. So with that, Ryan, you'd like to make a comment or two, and and maybe we'll toss it to Scott then.
6: Sure, yeah. Um, I I just want to thank uh, EMS World for this opportunity, and thank you to everyone on the call. Uh, You're all here because you're out there serving other people. Um, in some way, shape, or form, whether you're a provider or somebody, you know, who's in the billing office, you're all making this work for the folks out there. And uh, thank you very much. Stay safe. Um, stay sane over the next, you know, coming weeks and months. And you guys are out here on the cusp of this thing. The fact that you're on this call means that you're arming yourself with the right information. Yeah. Today is, is day one, folks. Hit the ground running because failing to prepare is, is preparing to fail. So uh, with that, I'll turn it over to Scott.
5: Yeah, no. Thank you uh, both to um, to Steve and and Ryan, and of course everyone over at EMS World. Um, you know, as I think in the last you know few weeks, we've all been working out straight. Nothing like being out on the front lines. I'm at very low risk of actually engaging or encountering a patient with COVID, but recognize that we're here as we are in uncharted territory. Of course, there isn't there there aren't any laws specifically drafted that tell us how to answer these. So we will do our best. Certainly reach out to those organizations, such as the AAA or PWW or any of the other groups that represent EMS organizations. And, um, you know, we're all here to help and just, you know, thank everyone for their efforts.
4: All right. Thank you all. Thank you, John and Hillary. And as presenters, we're going to sign off. Is that okay?
2: That's, That's totally fine, Steve. Thank you again, gentlemen, for your time today and all the work and the preparation. We really appreciate it. Thanks again to our attendees. And have a great day and
3: weekend.
7: This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of EMSWorld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram.